Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So this week, we're going to the Gaza Strip, where Israeli troops just killed dozens of Palestinians in a single bloody day. Israel says it was acting in self-defense, that Palestinians were trying to cross into Israel, and that it had to do something to keep them out. Palestinians say Israeli troops murdered unarmed protesters in cold blood, and that they may have committed war crimes. We've talked about that in depth on the site, and I was actually personally on another Vox podcast today explained to talk through the whole Gaza backstory in some detail. So on this episode, we want to talk about something different. In the past, similar violence in Gaza generated huge protests and political fury across the Arab world. This time around, it hasn't. So we're going to talk about why the new violence hasn't attracted as much attention as in the past and what that silence says about the Mideast's future. So Jen, in the past, there was sort of a playbook, right, that leaders kind of pulled from whenever you had mass death. And like, what did they do? What was the playbook? Right. So Arab leaders um, from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to Jordan, et cetera, would often use the Israeli-Palestinian crisis or the Arab-Israeli crisis to kind of deflect from problems at home, right? So rather than having people at home complain about authoritarian governments or economic problems or, or whatever was going on, they would use this as kind of like a focusing mechanism for rage and anger and discontent. Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is now the current leader of al-Qaeda, who took over after, after bin Laden was dead, years ago, he even talked about this, right, in terms of recruiting. And he was talking about how, you know, al-Qaeda shouldn't focus on things like sectarian differences between Sunni and Shia or, you know, any other kind of local causes. The one thing you know, you can get every Muslim to rally around is Palestine. So it was always like, just talk about Palestine. Like, you can get everyone to pay attention. And you would see massive protests in, in Arab capitals um, and also in, in Iran and, and non-Arab capitals in Indonesia, things like that. And you just didn't see that kind of thing this time around. But Zach, it seems like in the past you had those kind of protests kind of from two directions. Like, Arab leaders thought, hey, this is a good way, almost like a, a valve to let pressure out. And then you had Arab media kind of going around the clock. And then you had just organic, literal people were, you know, were legitimately furious. But can you just like talk about that? How there was sort of like the, on the one hand, leaders allowed it. And on the other hand, kind of people just masked even of their own volition. It's deeper than a pressure valve. And that actually speaks to how profound the change here is, right? In the past, Arab leaders would style themselves as the champions of the Palestinian cause. It wasn't just that they would let people protest and so people would feel better. It's that that was the, the, one of the sources of legitimacy for their regime. And... That is one way they would deflect from the fact that they were autocratic and saying, yes, you don't get to vote, but I'm still representing your concerns because I'm challenging the Israelis and at times literally going to war with them. And there's really much less in the way of outright staking the legitimacy of their regimes on advocating for the Palestinians than there was in the past. So you've seen this play out kind of tangibly three years ago, which was a time when there was a very literal war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. You had mass protests break out in Jordan by the Israeli embassy where flags were burned in some other Arab capitals. And there was like a fury in the streets. I mean, you had not just the flag burnings and not just the condemnations from leaders, but you had actual crowds massing by the hundreds, if not the thousands. And that's the kind of thing you did not see this time. You didn't see thousands of people in the streets. You didn't see flags being burned. You didn't see people kind of massing behind the embassy. You did see that the last time you had this kind of violence, Israel on Palestinian in Gaza. And I feel like that's kind of the shift, both the rhetoric that's used, but also like just what you're not seeing tangibly among people. Right. There used to be a kind of grim gallows humor joke about if you wanted to make money in the Middle East, you could be a flag seller on the streets of an Arab capital because you just had to, good joke. You had to sell American and Israeli flags and pretty much every other week 
you know, they're going to be buying them. But the point is that this would be a massive flashpoint, right? You would see, you know, effigies of whoever, of, you know, Netanyahu or uh, you know, George W. Bush or whoever being burned, like, in the streets. You would see Israeli and American flags being stomped on, right? And you just didn't see that this time, right? There were several thousand in Jordan who came out. It wasn't really that huge. We're not talking tens of thousands in the streets. There were a couple hundred Palestinians in a refugee camp in Lebanon who came out. There were a couple thousand here and there. But there weren't like these massive protests. And you didn't even see them in places that you would expect, like Iran and you know places like that. There were massive protests in Iran. They weren't about this. They were about local government issues in Kazaroon and other places. There have been protests about the Iran deal. But they're distracted, right? There's other stuff going on now. And that's kind of the point to get back to the kind of broader issue here is that there's so much other shit going on in a lot of these other countries and in the region in general that it's just not the salient point, right? The Israeli-Palestinian issue, as horrific and, you know, grim and depressing and awful as it still is, and I don't mean to make light of, you know, the deaths of anyone or or the, the severity of the crisis, but it's just not as resonant as it used to be in a lot of these places. Well, there used to be this theory, actually there still is for some Middle East observers called linkage, that argued that the Arab-Israeli conflict was really the central fault line in the Middle East. And if you could address the Arab-Israeli conflict, then a lot of the other problems would be more solvable. The prevalence of dictatorship, rivalry between Iran and the other countries in the region, that you could start to negotiate some kind of detente there. What's happened, that may have been true at one point, but what's happened is a shift in what governments are interested in to a lesser extent, but but still real, what the publics in Arab countries and other Middle Eastern countries are interested in. And to the point where it feels almost like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is mostly a concern for Israelis and Palestinians now when it comes to regional powers. I remember being, you know— eight or nine years old and and watching like a beauty pageant, right? And they would say like, what, you know, what do you want most in the world? They would say peace in the Middle East. And that meant Israel-Palestine, right? It didn't mean now if you say peace in the Middle East, what does that mean? Yemen? Syria? Iraq? Like, it doesn't mean Israel-Palestine. It means a whole bunch of stuff. I I want to hear more about like young Jen and her like watching a beauty pageant. Yeah, were you in a beauty pageant? No. No. I definitely wanted to be on Star Search though. But Zach, to your point, I I think it's not just that the care about this is limited to Israel and Palestine. When I go to Israel, people there are just obsessed with Iran. I mean, it's Iran, 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 Iran. And I think as we're talking kind of more broadly, like there's the shift, not just in a general sense of Israel-Palestine not being what causes peace, but the much more specific fear that Iran is what causes instability, that Iran is what is an existential threat in in the eyes of the leaders, whether it is or it isn't, to Israel, to Saudi Arabia, to the Emirates. So there's like this shadow, and that shadow isn't Israel-Palestine. That shadow is fear of Iran. And that's, I think, what's been so interesting these last couple of months, especially in the run-up to Trump pulling out of the Iran deal and sort of the rhetoric since. You now have like the U.S. also basically saying, we are also all in on like concerns about Iran. And that's kind of like, I think, the meta shift. Right. It's not just Israel that you go to and you hear Iran, Iran, Iran. It's Saudi Arabia. It's the UAE, right? It's it's the Gulf more generally. Um, And that's created this weird quasi sort of kind of real alliance, right? Where Saudi Arabia and its kind of Gulf allies are essentially, for all intents and purposes, kind of allied with Israel, which, you know, if you had said that 25 years ago, 
would have just been baffling. It would have just been like, you're that's insane. You're making stuff up. But it's real, right? And we're talking not just like their interests are aligned here, like actual security kind of underground security cooperation, right? Like military to military, intelligence sharing, things like that, because it's all about Iran. And why? Well, Iran has essentially become this kind of regional powerhouse. It's expanding its influence. And Iran and Saudi Arabia have this kind of longstanding rivalry. And Saudi Arabia doesn't want Iran to get really powerful. It doesn't want it to have nuclear weapons. Israel also doesn't want Iran to be powerful and to have nuclear weapons. So their interests are aligned, but they're all really concerned about the same thing. So they're actually kind of all on the same side now, which is why when it comes to Israel-Palestine, right, if you're Saudi Arabia and you see Israel do something to Palestinians or, you know, this violence like what happened in Gaza this week, yes, they made a statement saying, right, you know, this is this is bad. We condemn this, right? Yes, Arab newspapers in Saudi Arabia, you know, ran stories about it. But it wasn't this, like, massive condemnation because you kind of just want to stay on Israel's good side because you guys are doing other stuff that's more important to you and you're doing it together. And you don't really want the Palestinian issue to fuck that up. There's sort of two key events that kicked off the dynamic that Jen was just describing. Right? The first one was the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. What, what that did was topple the principal check on Iran's regional influence, Saddam Hussein, right. uh, who controlled, who was Sunni and controlled a majority Shia country and had fought a war, a vicious, bloody, long war with the Iranian government. With him gone, all of a sudden it became plausible that the new Iraqi government could end up being an ally of Iran, which really freaked out the Saudis and gave Iran more ability to move outside of its own country and expand its influence regionally because it didn't have to contend with Saddam trying to check it, right? And then you had the 2011 Arab Spring uprisings, which happened in a number of different countries, most notably at this point Syria, which became battlegrounds for the Iranians and the Saudis trying to make sure that friendly governments ended up being in charge until a lesser and greater extent, right? Libya and Tunisia, relatively peripheral, Bahrain and Yemen and Syria, really big deals in terms of Arab Spring uprisings for this rivalry. And so when Iran and Saudi are preoccupied with fighting with each other in these different battlegrounds, that just subsumes the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in terms of their agenda as governments and in terms of what they're getting their publics to pay attention to, who the boogeymen are. But what's wild is that Iran is also doing this, right? So Iran, because of this dynamic that's been going on, Iran has actually capitalized on this for a long time. It said, look, none of these countries give a shit about you, Palestine. We are still supporting Hamas. We are still supporting Hezbollah, right? We are still fighting the resistance. We are still fighting Israel. Except that right now, you're again, they're also distracted, like I said, by, you know, the collapse, the potential collapse of the Iran deal, by also— fighting back against Saudi Arabia by trying to manage this war they're deeply, deeply involved in in Syria, right? So you don't even see Iran capitalizing on this the way they typically would. I mean, they are condemning it, right? It's not to say there hasn't been a response. But again, you don't see these massive protests. You don't see huge uprisings. You don't see this massive, like, fight. And it's because there's just a lot of other stuff going on. And, you know, poor Palestinians are sitting there like, hey, does, hey, does anyone remember us? Hey, remember us? You know, there's a moment earlier this month where you had the government of Bahrain say this thing that would have been unimaginable even a couple of years ago, which was to go onto Twitter and say that Israel had a right to defend itself. This was after Israel bombed Iranian targets inside Syria. 
So the, the, the tweet, which is kind of worth reading, because it's not very long, but it's just so striking. It is the right of any country in the region, including Israel, to defend itself by destroying sources of danger. Sources of danger equals Iran. But you would never have heard right. a Gulf country say, like, Israel has a right to defend itself. That's kind of what the U.S. used to say. And the fact that that is now what a Gulf country is saying, it just shows you, you know, as clearly as you possibly can, as vividly as you can, the shift. I actually hadn't heard that until you just mentioned it. Uh, that's remarkable. I, I can't emphasize enough how, if you're familiar with the history of the Middle East, how bizarre that is. So right, just, countries just, don't even like to talk about Israel, to like say Israel's name, right? Like we don't even recognize the existence of Israel, let alone the government tweeting out, Israel has a right to defend itself. That's staggering. And this wasn't like yanking it from the guy's mouth with some like hard-hitting questions. Right. This was the foreign minister of Bahrain on Twitter. Right. right? Like it wasn't- Just woke up so, and said, I'm going to talk about Israel today. You know, we talk a lot about Trump. We talk about a lot of things that Trump does that baffle or infuriate all of us. When Trump says that there is this alliance, this kind of Saudi-Israel alliance that's emerging, and when he says like, we, we as America kind of can accelerate it, he's not wrong on either part of that. Right. And just to bring it back, you know, we talked a lot about Iran and, and Saudi and how all these countries see it. But again, I think what matters here, you know, one of the biggest questions here is what does that mean for the Palestinians, right? Who is going to champion their cause and what do they do? Early on, back in, you know, the 70s and 80s, Palestinians were trying to get their cause on the international stage, right? And carried out horrific dramatic terror attacks like Munich, right? Like hijacking airplanes to get people to pay attention to this situation and hear their voices. That is a horrific way to get attention for your cause. Absolutely. But it's striking, right? We're back to the point where nobody's really paying attention, right? I mean, we are because we cover this stuff, right? It's not to say that nobody cares, right? And I think, you know, Zach, you were making this point the other day when we were talking about this. Europe in particular, um, Western Europe has been very vocal, far more than the United States, you know, pushing back against Israel, calling for, you know, independent inquiries into the violence and things like that. Um, so it's not to say that nobody gives a shit, right? I, I care about Palestinians also. I care about this issue, right? But in a kind of broader geopolitical sense, it, it's gone. So what does that mean? Like, what do they then do? Well, it's important, again, to distinguish, and I think you did this a little, but to like really emphasize that it is one thing to say that Arab governments, and to a lesser extent, the Arab public is less interested in the situation in the occupied territories. And it is a, another thing to say that the world has stopped paying attention to the Palestinians. Right. And that's just not true, right? If there's, if anything, you've seen on American college campuses, in European capitals, uh, much more, and in political parties, especially left-wing political parties, uh, much more emphasis in recent years on a, a really hardline pro-Palestinian position. Right. You know, support for the whole boycott, the boycott divestment sanctions movement, rather than some kind of more, you know, you know, both sides are responsible. And there's been an uptick in criticism of Israel, even in the U.S. Democratic Party, one of the most, you know, center of center-left parties in the Western world, there's been there's been a turn towards being critical of Israeli military actions recently. Uh, and it's also worth noting that this in some ways could be more productive than the support that Palestinians have gotten from Arab countries. Not to say that it's good or endorse it, but Saddam Hussein used to pay the families of suicide bombers, right? That was not exactly a good incentive right. for how Palestinians should protest. Yeah, Zach, I'm glad you brought up uh, BDS, so the boycott divestment 
sanctions movement um, because Palestinians recently have brought that up to say, like, this is one of the main ways that we want to fight back. I think the response should be an alternative strategy concentrating on popular nonviolent resistance, boycott divestment sanctions as the best two instruments to force Israel to change its policy. So that was uh, Mustafa Barghouti, who's a member of the Palestinian Legislative Council. Um, he also sits on the Central Council of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. Um, and he was, you know, speaking to the BBC, and she was asking him, you know, what can Palestinians do now that the U.S. has essentially thrown in its lot completely and sided with Israel, right? So what what do you guys have left? What are you going to do now? And and that was his answer, right? Nonviolent resistance and BDS. But this is a really controversial strategy, right? BDS, just so we're clear, boycotts, meaning don't buy products that are made in like Israeli settlements or products that are made in Israel at all, right? It's kind of a broad movement. Um, divestment, meaning getting U.S. hedge funds and you know investment funds to not invest and to divest from businesses and companies and stuff that are either Israeli or involved in, you know, in the settlements. And then sanctioning, right? Trying to sanction the government. And it's based on the South African model, right? BDS was used to fight apartheid in South Africa. And so it's kind of modeled on that, like, hey, this worked to try to, you know, essentially turn... South Africa into a pariah and to completely, you know, pressure it to the point that it, it would change its behavior, right? That's the idea. It's kind of idea behind sanctions in general. And so it's based on that, but it's, it has a lot of different resonance in this situation. And, and I think we can sort of close here because you're seeing this divide. I mean, Zach, you mentioned this before between what you're seeing on college campuses and in some cases in Europe, especially what you're seeing among left-wing parties where BDS is catching on and so far, it hasn't had much impact on either the Israeli economy or certainly not Israeli policy, but you are seeing it there. But then the huge elephant in the room is the United States government. And you're seeing on college campuses in the U.S., even among American Jews, polling data shows like a shift towards a more pro-Palestinian, slightly less supportive of the Israeli government. But the U.S. government itself, Democrat and Republican, at every elected level, is not listening to BDS. And they are not listening to voices saying Israel should not do this. If anything, you, know, you had a very good piece this week on Vox.com about how the Trump administration has just given Israel this unprecedented blank check and said the fault for this is only with Hamas, only with the Palestinians, which is remarkable and sort of an ahistoric shift. And I think as we end there, like that's what I think we should be looking for kind of in the weeks ahead. If violence continues, not just what does Europe say and not just what do Arab capitals say, but also what, if anything, does Washington say? And I think that's what we'll be looking for uh, as we look ahead to the next few weeks. Hello, I'm Ravi Gurumathi. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts of a new weekly podcast called Displaced from Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work. Right now, we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, the biggest number of people displaced because of conflict. You've seen it in the headlines about Syria or Yemen or Jordan. If you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. For elsewhere, we're going to a strait of water separating Russia and Ukraine, more specifically to a bridge on that water and more specifically to a truck, because in that truck is Vladimir Putin. And again, the, sort of the visuals are amazing. It's Putin getting into a truck, sitting next to some probably terrified Russian truck driver. Putin, who normally gets photographed doing manly things like riding tigers and being in submarines and flying planes. Here is just a literal truck driver, chucking along very comically slowly across this new... 12-mile, $4 billion bridge that connects Russia 
and the part of Ukraine that it just sort of casually invaded and conquered and annexed not terribly long ago. Crimea. But what's relevant is like this bridge is like a $4 billion, 12-mile fuck you to the United States and Europe, which have said explicitly about this bridge, don't build it, to which Putin said, I'm going to build it. And then he did. The bridge represents not just an attempt for Russia to solidify its unlawful seizure and occupation of Crimea, but it also impedes navigation. So that's something uh, we're watching carefully and is a concern of ours. That was the State Department spokesperson, Heather Nauert, who was condemning, again, not just that Russia invaded and conquered and annexed Crimea, but specifically this bridge and specifically Putin's decision to go across it. And there's more to the kind of big fuck you of this bridge than the simple fact that they built it. It's also who built it. So it was built by two of his cronies, Arkady Rotenberg, who was a former Putin judo partner, because of course, so he was like the main person with the contract. The other person was Sergei Chemizov, who was Putin's KGB colleague in East Germany in the 80s. They're both sanctioned by the U.S. So the people that he chose to run this project are under formal, literal U.S. sanctions. And so imagine that. It's not just that the U.S. says, don't, don't build a bridge. He does. It's not just the U.S. says, hey, don't annex Crimea. He did is that the people he chooses of all the possible cronies to build it are specifically cronies that the U.S. has already sanctioned. Well, this is part of the point of the Putin foreign policy, right, is that everything is not just about what it is, like the the actual action. It's about what it says and the message that it sends to his public about the greatness of Russia and the greatness of Vladimir Putin specifically in making Russia great again. And in this case, by doing things, a deliberately provocative thing in an exceptionally provocative manner, the message is not just the United States into the world. It's also to his own public. He needs to develop the sense of Russian strength under the Putin regime and telling these people, look, we're ignoring U.S. sanctions and we're taking this new territory and we're making it part of ours. Well, that is a very clear and very good way of telling them Vladimir Putin is powerful and he's still here and he is representing your interests. Right. He's saying, not only did I straight up seize Crimea, but I just built a bridge to connect our countries. And not only did I build a bridge, but I'm going to be the first guy to drive across it. Except, oops, it actually turns out, this is the best part of the entire story, he actually wasn't the first uh, entity, shall we say. Mammal. Wasn't the first mammal to cross the bridge. He was beaten by a tiny little orange and white tabby cat. So uh, it turns out, you know, Putin had planned to have this big spectacle, right? And by the way, it wasn't just one orange truck. It was like this convoy, like we've got ourselves a convoy of like massive orange trucks with like Putin in the in the driver's seat. But it turns out that the day before they were planning this big spectacle, this little orange and white tabby cat named Mostik, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly because I do not speak Russian, but this little cat that had been adopted by the construction crew who were, were building the bridge decided to just do a little trot completely from one side of the bridge to the other. And it turns out this cat has a massive Instagram following, like 35,000 followers on Instagram, which is really impressive. And whoever controls that account tweeted out, oh, I actually was the first one to cross the bridge. So Vladimir Putin, I'm really sorry. You're a big tough guy, but you got scooped by a cat. Right. And that cat, of course, was never seen again. Right. My favorite detail personally beyond the cat is that they, when Putin got there, started playing the Rocky theme song, even though perhaps forgotten was that in Rocky IV, the Soviet Union loses. That's kind of the whole theme of the movie. We'll close there. I think we should play the Rocky theme song as an outro. Hopefully with awesome music of this amazing theme song that involves people running up the stairs of Philadelphia. Thanks to our producer, Bird Pinkerton, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan. 
If you like what you heard, come subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Email us, worldly at vox.com. Hit us up on Twitter, hashtag worldlypodcast. We'll be with all of you next week.